Welcome to the Peckway Church Podcast. We're glad you're here. At Peckway, our mission is to transform lives by connecting people with God and with each other. It's our hope that this message will give you hope and encourage you to take the next step in your journey with Christ. For more information about our services and weekly ministries, visit us at peckwaychurch.com. Claim Jesus in this place today. I said, 
uh, once again to see you and to worship with you. We're having a couple of technical difficulties, I guess you could tell. So hopefully you're recalling on memory, uh, uh, Hark the Herald Angels there. And uh, But thank you for your patience as we do that this morning. I want to welcome you once again to Peckway Church and uh, for worshiping with us today. Inside of your bulletin is a great connection card. I'm going to invite you to take that out for those of you who are here in person. Online, there's going to be a connect link in the chat window that you can fill out the digital connection card as well. And if you're a first-time guest with us, you can simply just take out your mobile phone and text the words uh, hello to 717-872-5679. Again, that is hello to 717-872-5679. I believe that's also there the information in your bulletin ends as well. But this is just simply a way, uh, whether you fill out that card or do it through the, through the cell phone, that's a way that we can communicate with one another, we can make that connection, and that we can uh, answer questions. If you have uh, those about Peckway Church, um, we can send you updates about events and things that are going on here as well. And uh, so take a moment anytime during today's service to do that. Well, we are continuing our sermon series. Last week, we uh, talked about hope, and today we're going to talk about the peace that we can have when we know Jesus. So would you turn your attention maybe to the screens? Is that going to work, you guys? Good. Thumbs up. So here we go. Peace. We hear that word, and we envision something without conflict. Peace involves that, but there's so much more. Peace is a restored state of wholeness. The birth of Jesus announces the arrival of peace, and the death of Jesus creates peace with God. And when the angels proclaim peace on earth, the shepherds heard what our hearts long to hear, that God is indeed restoring all of it to his original and glorious purposes. So may we experience that kind of peace. It's an invitation for every person, and it's here now because Jesus is here now. This is peace. Welcome to Christmas. So we're going to look at today about peace, and we're going to look at some characters in the Bible uh, and how they had peace whenever they uh, understood who Jesus was and why he came. And so we can have that as we uh, look to Jesus. We can have the peace that passes all understanding uh, God's word says and so I pray that you would seek that this Christmas that in the midst of all the crazy right so busy all you have to do is drive through the city and as people are out Christmas shopping it gets a little crazy so but we can have peace no matter what it is but even more importantly peace for the storms and the things in our lives and you know uh, we often think uh, or talk about a silent night right we, we talk we sing that Christmas song and that's what we're going to do now uh, I'm going to invite you to stand as we sing about that. But think about the peace uh, that Jesus brings when we know him, when we trust him. So would you stand to your feet as we sing that carol together this morning? Silent night 
God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing it and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. Because Jesus came, he gave his life as a ransom for us. He lived that perfect life that we hear about, that we read about in scripture, and that we know if we know who Jesus is and have a personal relationship with him. And this next song reminds us that uh, even the darkness trembles at Jesus' name, and that we can have peace when we walk hand in hand in him. So would you be encouraged by this song? Let God minister to your heart today as we sing it together. Call the sea to still, the rage in me to still. 
Jesus, you make the darkness tremble. Jesus, Jesus, you silence fear. Jesus, Jesus, you make the darkness tremble. Jesus, Jesus, breathe, call these bones to Call these lungs to sing once again. I will praise Jesus, Jesus. You make the darkness tremble, Jesus, Jesus. You silence fear, Jesus, Jesus. You make the darkness tremble, Jesus, Jesus. Would you sing it again, Jesus? Jesus, Jesus. You make the darkness tremble, Jesus, Jesus. Your silence fear, Jesus, Jesus. You make the darkness tremble, Jesus, Jesus. Your name is a light that the shadows can't deny. Your name cannot be overcome. Your name is a light forever lifted high. Your
bow with me this morning. What fears do you need Jesus to calm today? In your heart, in your mind, in your life. What can Jesus um, bring stillness to today? Would you just take a moment to reflect on that and let Jesus bring that silence to those storms? We just sang about a silent night. And I know sometimes we sing Christmas songs and we've done them so many times or they become trite because, you know, we just kind of get nostalgic in those kind of things. But would you reflect on the meaning of what Jesus' birth brought to us and what he, how he brought redemption, how he ransomed his life, he gave his life, he sacrificed his life for you and me. And so as we reflect on these things today, as Christmas um, would you think about the spiritual part of it and what Jesus can do in your life today? Jesus, we thank you for the power that there is in your name and that you came and you made a way for us. Jesus, that you lived a life, God, that a life of love, a life of peace. And God, that you brought um, this uh, relationship with your Father and you uh, and made it possible that we can come and be a part of your family and that we could know this peace, God, that's not temporary. Lord, that's not dependent on our circumstances or our finances or things lining up and being perfect, God, but that trusting you God, as we read in your word, as we see the example that you set for us, Jesus, a life of love, as we've come out of this last series of talking about how we can be better together, how we can serve together, and it's all because of what you did, Jesus, for us on the cross. And so today, as we look into your word, Father, would you still our hearts, our minds, God, of the chaos that might be going on, Lord, or that we would focus on the meaning of Christmas uh, Lord, and that maybe relationships could be healed in our families, that this Christmas could be the most special Christmas as we come to know your peace today. And we pray and ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Thanks, Scott. Thank you, worship team. And as you settle in, and I do as well, I just want to take a moment of personal privilege, and, and, and I know you join me in this, and I just want to say thank you, not only the worship team, which, again, is up front and obvious to us, but Again, I want to say a special thank you to the tech team and Billy. Um, they, we have no idea. I, I think reality is most of us have no idea all, the, all they do during the week, what they do during the service. We're facing forward, and they're in the back working feverishly many, many times to get things right for us. And Billy, thank you. I know you love playing guitar, and in fact, you know, a personal confession, the whole first song, I didn't realize we had technical issues because I was looking for Billy, trying to catch his eye to tell him to turn it up. The only one that probably enjoys Billy playing more than Billy is me. And so I just want to say thank you guys for what you do back there week in and week out to make it possible for us to worship without distractions. And that's kind of the thing about a tech team. The only time they're noticed is when we have a problem, right? Otherwise, we just kind of take them for granted. I know I use that figuratively, but the reality is thank you for what you do. But let me get started. I know Scott was absolutely right. When we talk about peace, many of us simply think peace is the absence of conflict, the absence of difficulty. 
And that's certainly true, but it's, it's an incomplete picture. The reality is a biblical understanding of peace, as Scott said, as the video pointed out, truly is a, a wholeness, a fullness of life. That's really what shalom in the biblical text is all about. It's about wholeness. Wholeness in our relationships, wholeness in our souls, wholeness in our, our interactions with one another. It's wholeness. Now, with that said, I just want to, we're going to talk about that obviously today, but I want to get into it like this today and, and just offer you a personal opinion that I think you're going to agree with. And what I would say to you, and that opinion is this, that I think there are a few things in life that each and every one of us longs for more than our Father's love. I mean, that's just my conviction, my belief. I see it as a pastor. I see it as someone who functions in the role of counselor. That whether we're a son or daughter, the reality is all of us long for our father's acceptance and, and affection and approval and even appreciation as we get older. And the reality is when that, that love is there, that father's love is present, it fills our life with incredible good things. And many of us are the beneficiaries of good things. We've had a loving father. But here's what I know as well, and you know it too, you've seen it, you maybe even experienced it, that when that father's love's absence, it creates a crater in our life that we can spend the rest of our lives trying to fill, and some of us never successfully do. It creates that much pain, that much problem in our lives, and so here's what I want us to understand this morning as we get into this message, that the reality is all of us long for a father who is caring who is committed, who is giving. A father who looks at our failures and our flaws, and we all have them. A father who looks at those things with compassion and understanding rather than disdain and frustration. We, we long for a father who's for us, if you will, and not against us. And, and, and as true as that is for our earthly fathers, and that's where our minds go, I want to suggest to you that desires on steroids when it comes to our heavenly father. That every single one of us longs for a God, a Heavenly Father, who meets our flaws, who meets our failures, who meets our struggles with compassion and not condemnation. A God who meets those failures and flaws with grace rather than judgment. Would you agree with me? Would you say, yeah, when I think of God and I think of my struggles, I want a God who instead of condemning me or beating me up for my flaws and failures, the failures that we're aware of, and we will admit, the reality is rather than having a God that does that with us, we want a God that rescues us in the midst of those failures. Those God, a God who instead of beating us up will lift us up. That's our desire, every one of us, when we think about a Heavenly Father. And I say all that because I want to say this, that's what we're going to look at today. That's what we're going to spend our time doing. This, this God who provides peace with us. Not just peace with one another, but peace with God Himself. But how I want to get into that is by reviewing how we started this series. Maybe you weren't here last week, maybe you were, and, and again, memories being what they are, if the experts are right, you forgot 90% of what I said 72 hours after I said it, I get that, I do the same thing. But let's just review how we got into this series. And, and remember, if you were here or not here, the reality is we began following Luke's record of the Christmas story. And what makes Luke's record unique is he adds, if you will, an extra day to the Christmas story that none other gospel writers add. It really, I refer to it as the lost day of Christmas because even though there are two significant individuals and a number of significant messages communicated by those two individuals, almost never do we hear them preached about. Almost never do, do we hear about them or read about them in the Christmas storybooks. We don't see them depicted in the movie. We don't see them on the Christmas card. And yet there these individuals are and these events are in the Bible. 
And there's a reason. They're not there by accident. They're, by, they're there by God's intention. And the reason they're there is to reveal to us the heart of our Heavenly Father. To reveal His love and compassion for us. And so again, last week we began through this journey in, in Luke chapter 2. And, and if you're not familiar with it, if you weren't here, the story, what we looked at, the text is printed there at the top of your outline. But we began talking about the fact that 40 days after Jesus was born, Mary, Joseph, with the baby Jesus, went to the temple to fulfill Jewish ceremonial custom, or more accurately, Jewish ceremonial law. And they did several things while they were at the temple to fulfill that. I'm not going to repeat them if you're interested in it, and some of that, what you read, is unclear to you. I'd encourage you to go back and listen to the message. But the point of it all was, while they were there, they met two significant people who communicated two very significant messages. Now, last week, we talked about the first individual in the first message from a man by the name of Simeon. And we learned about Simeon, and we heard what his message was. But there was a second individual who came on the scene immediately after Simeon began to talk to Mary about the significance and also the pain of Jesus' life and ultimate death on the cross. And right after that, as that was taking place, Luke tells us another significant person came on the scene with another significant message, and that's what we're going to look at today. So let's pick up where we left off with Luke last week in chapter 2, verse 20, uh, rather 36, and here's what we read. I'm reading from the NIV. There was also a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage, and then there was a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple but worshipped night and day, fasting and praying. Coming up to them at that very moment, the very moment that Simeon was making this prophecy, this, this if you will, this message communicating to Mary, he said she, he came up to her in that very moment and she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Israel. And I want you to underline that last phrase, the redemption of Israel. We're going to camp out there today, but let's begin because there's so much in those two verses that we need to understand culturally, historically, to be able to appreciate the message that we're going to look at today. And let's begin by simply introducing ourselves to this woman named Anna. Now, the word Anna in Greek, the name Anna in Greek, is simply the Greek form of Hannah. And I say that because your mind, you need to go and understand, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, that Luke, it seems, experts believe that he is kind of using, shaping his narrative of this scene in Jesus' life from the, from the time of Hannah presenting Samuel at, at the tabernacle. And so he's using this as a model. So it's interesting that Anna, just again, it's not by coincidence, by God's design, has the same name as Hannah. But here's the first thing he tells us about Anna. And that was she was a prophetess. Now, again, this is almost low-hanging fruit. And some of you go, really, Jerry? you got to explain this? But yeah, I do. And here's why. A, a prophetess was simply a female prophet. You go, yeah, I got that, Jerry. But here's the reason I share that to you. There, in the Scripture, there's only seven women identified as a prophetess. Seven women. In the entire scope of biblical history, seven women. The first we have, and first we're identified as a prophetess, is uh, is Miriam, the, the sister of Moses. The second's in the book of Judges. It's the judge Deborah, or if you want to just interpret that as leader, Deborah. And then it goes all the way over to the New Testament, the book of Acts, where Luke, again, is writing now the history of the church, and he talks about four daughters of Philip, and he calls them prophetess. 
And then obviously here in his gospel, he refers to Anna. So seven prophetesses in the entire Bible. Now here's the reason I share all that. Because what I want to clarify for us to understand this scripture is what a prophet does. And I say that because the temptation for most of us culturally, and again, I, I, I learned this in school, it's the only reason I'm clear on it, and maybe you are, but I just know when, when we think in our culture of prophet, we automatically think of someone who tells the future, right? That, that's where our mind goes. And so biblically, and, and scholars talk about how prophets were, would be foretelling the future. And they did a part of that, but that was not the primary function or role of a prophet in the Old Testament. It was not the primary function or role of God's prophet in the Bible. Rather, a prophet's primary role, God's prophet's primary role, was to foretell. In other words, he or she was to speak for God to God's people a specific message for a specific time. So really, kind of the best illustration I give you, in some sense, really a prophet's role was to be a preacher or a teacher. But here's the difference, and, and, and you need to understand it. I, I'm not claiming when I stand up here as a preacher or a teacher that I have received divine revelation. Now, I hope for inspiration. I hope for God's leadership, but a prophet, Peter makes it very clear. Write this down. Take a look at it later. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 21 is very clear. Peter says, prophets did not speak on their own. Prophets were moved along. They were inspired by the Holy Spirit. In other words, a prophet of God in and of himself or herself was not self-selected or self-directed. A prophet was chosen by God. And a prophet was chosen by God for the primary role of speaking his message in a particular situation to a particular person or group of people. Does that make sense? They were God's messengers. God's physical messengers to a particular people or a particular group of people. And what Luke wants us to understand is Anna was one of those people. And the last time there was one of those people, a prophet, was over 400 years previous. That's why the scholars speak about the intertestamental period as the years of God's silence. Because for that 400, almost 500 years, there had not been a prophet. God had not lifted up and called and anointed a prophet. But here we have Anna. So it's significant. Luke is saying something very significant to us, but that's not all he says. The other thing he tells us is she was very old. Now he's not being ageist or sexist. We need to understand what he's doing here, and let me just explain it to you. Let me read it to you from the text. It says she was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and then was a widow until she was 84. Now that's in the NIV. Some of you have other translations, and the reason I say that is this. That's how the NIV interpreted that, because that phrase, she was 84, in, in the text, if you would understand biblical Greek, you, you would understand and know that that could refer to how long she lived, as the NIV takes it, or how long she was a widow. Now, here's the significance of that. In that phrase, she was very old. Luke tells us that she, she was... She was lived as a wife for seven years. Okay, hold that number. We could do this math together. Okay, now the typical marrying age, if you've been around and heard me preach about Mary before, the typical age of marriage back then was 13 or 14. Think about that, moms and dads. Your daughter being married at 13 or 14 years of age. So she was married for seven years. She probably was 13 or 14 when she was married. So what we know is she was 20 to 21 when her husband died. And then that verse is saying, one of the ways to interpret it is that she lived as a widow for another 84 years. 
which means she could have possibly been 104, 105 years old. This, folks, was an official senior adult. She, she was not a young lady. And, and the whole point of doing that, you say, why was he giving us that kind of detail uh, about this woman? Because he wanted us to understand, that, and that's really the third thing he tells us, she was a very devout woman. She was a woman devoted to the things of God, the message of God, the person of God. And he wants us to understand that because take a look what he writes. He writes that she never left the temple, but worshiped night and day, fasting and praying. Now again, and, you're gonna, and I'll be done with this because some of you who aren't into kind of this academics are losing your mind right now, so hang with me. But you need to understand when he says she never left the temple, that could be literal because there were select people that were giving living quarters at the temple. But that was a very small number. Another way to understand that text, to read the text accurately, and when I say the temple, I'm talking about the temple area, not the temple itself. But the reality is another way to read that text is idiomatically. In other words, like some of you have said to me, and you've said it, you've grown up saying, to say, I grew up in church, right? Now, did you literally grow up in the church building? Or have you, have you ever said, you know what, we were at church every time the doors were open. Really? When the church staff was there? No, you're speaking idiomatically. We understand culturally that what you mean, I'm there all the time. And, and that's the point. It could be that she literally lived there. Or it could be that Luke is simply trying to say in a culturally relative way to say she was there all the time. And the reason it's unclear in the text, because his goal was not to communicate a time frame. He was, his goal was to communicate this woman was devout. She was committed to the things of God, about being with God, about being about prayer and fasting. That even, if you will, communicates the depth of her devotion. And all of that is significant because he wants us to understand, now here is this prophetess who for years committed herself to knowing God, being with God, serving God, being around the things of God. And in the very moment that Jesus comes in the temple, she's there. In other words, this isn't an accident. This is a God plan thing. And, and, and so the question I hope you're asking is, what did she say? I mean, we knew last week you were part of this, what, what, what Simeon said, but what did this prophetess, the first person that God raised up in four to 500 years to speak on his behalf, to be his anointed messenger, what in the world did she say? Because Luke clearly wants to understand what she said was important. It was critically important, and we need to get it. We need to understand it. We don't need to miss it. So let's read again what Luke tells us. Said, Coming to them at that very moment, in other words, the very moment Simeon was talking about Jesus being the Messiah, the promised one. She gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all we're looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. There's that phrase we're going to camp out with for the rest of the morning. Now, what I want you to understand is very quickly that she did two things when she saw Jesus. And they're both important. The first thing was she thanked God. You said thank God for what? Not for a good day, not for the food she had. She thanked God that God is a promise keeper. That this God who had promised, clean back, remember, in creation, in, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, that God promised a Messiah, a Savior after the fall. And he promised profoundly through Isaiah and other prophets along the way in time. Finally, that promise was fulfilled. She thanked God for being a faithful promise keeper. But the second thing Luke tells us she did was she spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Israel. That's Luke's words. 
In other words, what he wanted us to understand is she spoke, began telling anyone and everyone the good news that, that Jesus was God's Redeemer. And, and, and again, I, I don't have time to camp out here. I wish I would. But let me just say something to you that's going to become relevant later in the message, folks. That, that Greek verb that she spoke, that is in a continuous past tense. The Greek, it's, it's the imperfect. Here's the reason I share that. It's ongoing continuous activity in the past. In other words, she didn't tell everyone to go about her day. She began to tell and tell and tell and tell. The rest of her life mission was to tell people this incredible news that the Redeemer had come. And so technically, we could identify, and experts do, Anna is the very first evangelist, the very first Billy Graham, who made her life telling others this incredible news. But you say, Jerry, what was her message? And here's the interesting thing. Luke really doesn't tell us exactly. I mean, Simeon, we almost get a transcript of what he said to Mary and Joseph, but when it comes to Anna's message, we don't get that. We get a summary. And again, you say, what's the summary? Well, the summary was she, she talked about the redemption of Israel. So let me give you a paraphrase. Let me give you the summary as I would give it. It's there a space in your outline. What, what Anna basically said to those who were willing to listen is if you're looking for redemption, the Redeemer has come. If you're looking for redemption, the Redeemer has come. Now again, let, let me just put it in neutral for just a second in terms of let's not make a whole lot more forward progress until we make sure we understand what that's all about. In other words, that we understand the phrase redemption or redeemer. Because here's what I know about our culture today, and you know it as well. We don't use that word a lot, right? I mean, when we talk about redemption today, it's usually in, in relationship to, to loyalty rewards programs, right? Like frequent flyer miles and free cups of coffee, or my personal favorites, Cabela's points. I mean, we're talking about loyalty rewards. But when the biblical writers talk about redemption, when they talk about Jesus being a redeemer, the meaning is far deeper than that, far more significant. And so let me just break it out. Some of you saw it on the screen, and, and I changed it for you. But here's what Anna's message is really saying. She's saying is if you're looking for peace with God then the price payers come. In other words, what she was saying, the point of redemption she's communicating is we find peace with God when a payment is made that sets us free from the debt that we owe God for the evil or sin in our lives. That's technically theologians. That's what theologians and biblical scholars understand. The Bible teaching when it talks about redemption, finding peace with God by a payment made to deliver us from evil, specifically sin. Now, I, I say that twice for this reason, because I think that idea, I believe with all my heart, that idea of needing delivered from anything, let alone sin, is lost on us culturally today. Because if we're honest with ourselves, as we look around our culture, the reality is most of us don't think we need to be saved from anything, much less sin. Culturally, we just don't even think it's a problem. Culturally, it's not even a word today in our culture by and large. And so let's be honest about ourselves, where we're at culturally, where we're living today. While I know very few people who would legitimately mean and stand up and say, you know what, I think I'm morally perfect, relationally perfect. I don't know very many people who honestly would say, I believe I'm perfect. 
But I know a lot of people who would say, in essence, you know what, I'm good enough. I'm certainly better than those guys over there, right? I mean, most people today, they, they would never claim perfection. But I know most people today say, you know, I, I'm, I'm a relatively good person. Would you agree with that? Most of us say, you know, I, I'm a decent person. And so this sense of feeling we need a redeemer or that we need saved is lost in us culturally today. Because the truth is, where we're at as a culture, where we're at societally, is we feel pretty good about our standing with God. And all you've got to do is look at the research. Because most people believe, while they don't think their neighbor's going to heaven, they think they're okay. They'll make it in. And the reason we believe that is because we think God grades on a curve, right? And as long as we're in the upper portion of the curve, we're good. So let's think about this. 2,000 years ago, God sent the first prophet to, to, to the world, to Israel, with this big message that says, if you're looking for redemption, the Redeemer has come. And where we live today is in a culture that says, yeah, I don't think I've got a problem. I think I'm good with God. Now, let's be honest, that usually gets rattled a little bit when there's a death or a divorce or a personal or national or world crisis. But apart from those moments, we, by and large, we culturally and as individuals feel pretty good about ourselves. We, we feel like, you know what, I, I don't really need a redeemer or save because I think me and God are pretty good. Now, here's the reason I'm spending all the time there, folks. What if our self-assessment's wrong? And what if Anna was right? What if her big message that if you're looking for redemption, the Redeemer has come is a message that we need today. And we've always needed. You say, why would you even suggest that, Jerry? Well, take a look at the next few verses on your outline. Because Jesus is speaking, and, and, and Jesus, when, it talk, when he was speaking about the standard of goodness that God says is acceptable, the, the standard of goodness that's good enough, take a look at what Jesus said. You are to be perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. Do you see the standard? Jesus said the standard of good enough is God's goodness, God's perfection. And following along, talking about that very issue to the group of Roman Christians, the Apostle Paul, who in my opinion, it's only my opinion, is probably the, the next most incredible man next to Jesus himself, certainly the, a pure man and only man, Paul, he said this, and underline this, all people have sinned and are not good enough for God's glory. That's pretty clear, isn't it? All of us are not good enough. Now, who was right? Jesus and Paul? Or our self-assessment? It's an important question. And, and folks, it, it, the stakes are important enough that we need to spend some time and figure this one out. Would you agree? Who's right? Jesus and Paul are a self-assessment. And here's how I propose we do it this morning together. I want us to use what I'm going to call a goodness scale, okay? You say, what's a goodness scale? Well, Cam, can you put it up on the screen? You should have it on your outline. I think you have it on your outline, but if not, it's up here on the screen. And all it is is a ladder. Okay, and here's how I want to use this goodness scale, goodness ladder. Let's call it a goodness scale. At the very top of it, you have, do you have it in your outline, Amber? Okay, so... At the very top of it, at the very top run, I want you to write God. 
Okay? And here's the reason I'm saying that. Because God, by very definition, is ultimate goodness, ultimate morality, ultimate love. I mean, even if you don't believe in a God, if you just want to engage with this academically and philosophically, then you and I understand that God, by his very definition, would, if we can imagine someone more loving, more moral, more good, then whatever that is, whoever that is, that's God. And so even if you don't believe in a God, and I hope you do, but even if you say, I, I'm not in, in, I don't buy that, that's fine, I'm glad you're here, but just write God there, because philosophically, academically, you would still have to agree with that. Now, let's go all the way down to the bottom of the scale. We say, okay, at the top of the scale is God. Now, who do you think we ought to put at the bottom of the ladder? L let me suggest what I think. Let's put war criminals, genocidal dictators and maniacs, and the people who invented turkey, bacon, and low-sodium potato chips, okay? <laughs> because that's just people messing with perfection, okay? In other words, what I'm talking about are the really bad people. I'm sorry if you like turkey bacon. I didn't say if you like it, I just said if you invented it, you and I are going to have a disagreement. In fact, I know some of you agree with me there, but you don't want to acknowledge it, so I won't ask you. But if you're there, see me after the service, and we'll form a support group, and I'll bring the snacks during Christmas, okay? But the reality is, that's what we say, the really, really bad people. Now, let me ask you this question to just hang on. Where would you put yourself on that ladder? And before you answer that, let me give you two more benchmarks. Can I do that? Here's the first one. What about Mother Teresa? We all have heard and know Mother Teresa. Some of you, like myself, have read her writings. But again, I'll just be honest with you. In reading her life and studying her life, I believe below God, below Jesus, below the apostles, below the heroes of the faith we read about in Hebrews 11, I think Mother Teresa's right in there. But let me tell you this about Mother Teresa. If you read her stuff, you know it's true. She was incredibly conscious of how far short she fell of God's standard of goodness. In fact, so much so that she was here listening to me right now, she would take real offense at me even suggesting that I would put her just a little bit below Jesus, the apostles, and the heroes of the faith. But because this is my illustration, for the sake of argument, let's put her up there. Just a little bit lower than God. Now, one more. One more benchmark for us. How about Billy Graham? Again, we all know Billy Graham. Where would you think we ought to put Billy Graham on the ladder? Now, again, to help you, if you've read his stuff, if you've listened to his preaching, Billy Graham studied the life of Mother Teresa. No surprise there. But he was blown away by the level of goodness, her heart goodness, her life goodness. How much her life reflected the heart of God. And so again, I could tell you, based on his writings, that Dr. Graham, if he was here and we'd ask him if he was still alive and we asked him to put himself on the chart, he would not put himself on par with Mother Teresa. In fact, he would want to put himself much lower. But again, I would suggest to you, because this is my illustration for the sake of discussion, let's put him just a little lower than Mother Teresa, because I think he truly was a man of, credible man of God. Now, there you have it, four benchmarks. God, Mother Teresa, Billy Graham, and the executives of Oscar Mayer and Frito-Lay, okay? There's your benchmarks. Where would you put yourself on that scale? Seriously, take a moment. And you don't have to do it in writing, I encourage you to, but at least mentally, where would you put yourself on that scale? God, Mother Teresa, Billy Graham, or the executives at Frito-Lay that messed up the holidays for me? 
Here's my point, folks. Here's the reason I, I, I'm asking you to do all that. Thinking we don't need a Redeemer is incredibly mistaken. It's a huge, huge mistake. Because even the best of us, and I think I gave you two of the best of us, still aren't good enough. Because God doesn't grade on the curve. When it comes to His standard, He said, my standard for you is my standard of goodness. Which means all of us are in trouble. That means all of us left our own goodness, left our own perfection, left our own resources, are in terrible trouble because our goodness is not good enough. Which means the only hope you and I have is someone rescues us. The only hope that you and I have is for a Redeemer. And folks, that's when Anna's message comes into play. That's what this great big announcement was all about, folks, because when the biblical writers talk about redemption, they're talking about your need and my need for something needing to be paid, something needing to be given, something needing to be sacrificed. And so Anna comes and says in the temple, in those 40 days after Jesus' birth, and says, folks, if you're looking for a Redeemer, the good news is the Redeemer has come. That God Himself in the person of Jesus came to earth and became our Redeemer. In other words, He came to give His life as a sacrifice. So the penalty and the punishment that we deserve for our sins can be forgiven. And we can have access to the presence in the person of God. Not only in the present, but in the future. And we call that heaven. Which is why Jesus' favorite description for himself was the Son of Man. Not simply because he was identifying with us. He says, I'm one of you. I'm, I'm a bone of your bone, to use um, Adam's words, a bone of your bone and flesh of your flesh. No, Jesus wanted us to understand that, that he was fully man, but there was something deeper. Jesus wanted us to also understand, not only that he was one of us, but he wanted us to understand that he came as our Redeemer. He came as our Rescuer. That he came as a person that was willing to pay what needed to be paid, do what needed to be do, and sacrifice what needed to be sacrificed so that you and I could have peace with God. So that you and I could ultimately live in the presence of God both now and in heaven. Jesus put it like this, the last verse you're on, take a look at it. Jesus said, the Son of Man, there's that phrase, did not come to serve, but to be served. To give his life as a ransom for many. And folks, the very best way I could help you understand what Jesus meant by that is to ask you to imagine this. Would you just do this for me? Would you just imagine? Now again, for some of you, I know this is a stretch, but just go with me. I want you to imagine that you were driving recklessly. Too fast, whatever, distracted, I don't know, you were texting. Just imagine you were driving recklessly. And in the process, the most horrific thing happened, and that is you hit a young child on the way to school. And that little boy, that little girl, died. You were arrested, your case was taken to trial, the evidence presented, and you were found guilty. Beyond a shadow of a doubt. No question. There was no divided jury, it, it, it was clear. And so the judge pronounced sentence, and the sentence is death. But then something unexpected 
and truly amazing happens. In that courtroom, the judge stands up, she takes off her, her judge's robes, she walks down to where you're standing before the bench, she says, the sentence has to be carried out because I'm a good judge and I'm an honest judge and I'm a just judge and you're clearly guilty of the crime. But I don't want to see your life end this way. And so I'm going to take and serve the penalty and the punishment on your behalf. I'm going to die in your place. Folks, the reason I get emotional about that is because that's redemption. That's what Jesus did for us. He took on the penalty of your sins and mine to redeem us. To redeem us from the penalty and punishment that our sins rightly deserve before a holy and just God. And the incredible thing is that he offers that to anyone who will receive it. Anyone who recognizes they're broken. And folks, that's what Anna recognized that day in the temple. She recognized that Jesus was born to do that. And she was so excited and motivated by God, she shared with anyone and everyone continually the incredible message that says, whatever choices have left you broken, whatever acts of betrayal to God and betrayal to others have carried you away from God, however far you have slid down the goodness scale, it doesn't matter. Because your Heavenly Father loves you so much that He sent His Son Jesus to be your Redeemer. In other words, he sent Jesus to save you. And folks, here's the thing. God calls you, and he calls me to be the same kind of evangelist. He calls you and me to share with others at Christmas and every other time of the year the incredible message that the Redeemer that we desperately need has come. That's the message of Christmas. And here's what I want you to do in the next few moments. I want you to let that truth about the love and the compassion of your Heavenly Father fill you not only with gratitude, but a sense of mission and compassion for others as Pastor Scott comes and he sings this song for you. Life within me cries, I know my 
very same God that spins things in orbit. He runs to the weary, the worn and the weak, and the same gentle hands that hold me when I'm broken. They conquer death to bring me victory. you with your heads bowed and your eyes closed have you ever personally owned that no matter how good you are and I don't question your goodness that it's still not good enough because just like the rest of us you fall short of God's perfection and as a result of that the simple truth is you need a redeemer you need what Jesus was born to do which was to die on a cross to set you and me free from the punishment that our sin deserves. Have you ever owned that? Not that you make mistakes, we're all willing to do that. But are you willing to own and admit that you're a sinner? 
If you've never done that, I want to invite you right now in this quietness, this moment, to just do it right now. Just tell Jesus you know you're a sinner. A sinner who needs his forgiveness. Just right now, tell him that you believed he died for your sins to redeem you. To buy you back, to purchase you, to pay the price. And then tell him that you want to turn from the way that you've been living your life, however good, but imperfect and short of God's ideal. And then just say, Jesus, come into my life. Come into my life as my forgiver, a leader, and empowerer. Just right now, where you're at in the quietness of your heart, just say that to him. I'll give you a moment. Jesus, thank you for your promise that you gave us through John that if we confess our sins, you are faithful, you are just, and you will forgive us. You will redeem us. Heavenly Father, that is the greatest Christmas gift any of us could ever receive. And this morning, we simply say thank you for it. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Thank you, Jerry. Maybe you made that decision this morning. You prayed that prayer that Jerry was uh, asking you to pray. You can, uh, on that gray card, on that gray card, excuse me, uh, you can indicate that today. We would like to provide resources to help you uh, in learning what it means to follow Jesus, what it means to make a commitment to him. Online, there's going to be uh, a link there as well that if you made that decision today, would you let us know? Reach out, and uh, we would be glad to talk with you. And uh, if you have questions about that, again, please, you can do that. Also, you can write prayer requests on the card and also online. We would love to pray with you. Um, uh, as we know, the holidays can sometimes be tough, um, maybe with loss of family members and things like that. So uh, we would love to pray along with you guys as well. And then also, uh, as we heard the story of Anna today and how she was the first evangelist, God calls us to do that as well to our friends and our families and our neighbors. And uh, so pray about who you can be inviting to hear the rest of this series. And then as we approach Christmas Eve, um, next week there's going to be some invite cards in there as well. So pray this week. Who is it that maybe God lays on your heart that you can hand that card to and invite them to come and be, and be a part of that special time of worship with us? Uh, I hope you have a great rest of your day and that I will see you again next week. And so uh, enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you.